The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You who would shame the plans of the poor, but there is no refuge. But the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are starting a three-week series this morning. Uh, The title of the series is The Generation of the Righteous. And we're going to look this week and next week at Psalm 14. And then two weeks from today, we are going to look at the first eight verses of Psalm 78. And the reason why we're doing this has a lot to do with something that you have probably experienced when you read your Bible. You'll be reading through your Bible and you'll come across a passage that you've read maybe a hundred times before. But for whatever reason, something in that passage, maybe a word, maybe a phrase, jumps off the page at you and you're like wow what are you trying to tell me here Lord and that happened for me as I was reading Psalm 14 just part of my annual Bible reading plan and and came across that line in verse 5 the Lord is with the generation of the righteous or God is with the generation of the righteous and that got me thinking about a number of things for myself but also by extension for us as Grace Church What does it mean for God to be with the generation of the righteous? What what does it mean to be righteous, first of all, right? And then secondly, how do righteous people live? And, And what about this idea of a generation? That got me thinking about not only the present generation, the adults here at Grace Church now, but the coming generation. And there are a number of things that were swirling around. You know, all these kinds of things happen in a context. And our context, of course, is COVID by and large. And not just COVID, but the craziness of the world in which we live right now. So what does it look like for us, the adults at Grace Church, to be distinctly Christian people in the cultural moment in which we live. Now, if you were here in 2019, and I preached through First and Second Peter, and that was really the theme of First and Second Peter. And what I never could have known then in 2019 is how crazy 2020 was going to be. And so it's worth one more sermon to talk about what it means to be a righteous people in our cultural moment. So that's next week. And we'll look at mainly the second half of Psalm 14 for that. But then again, as, as we have you know, had to change some of the ways in which we do ministry and think especially about how do we come alongside parents here at Grace Church to assist them in raising their kids to know and love Jesus, which has been our mission when it comes to children's ministry. Now that our what has been our primary method has had to change, that is children's Sunday school and and children's worship during the service because of COVID, we need to ask the question, what then should our method be when it comes to fulfilling that mission of assisting the parents here at Grace Church to raise their children to know and love Jesus? And so that got me thinking about the next generation. And what does it look like for us in this season as a church and as parents to, by God's grace, raise up a generation that knows and loves Jesus, a generation with whom God is with 
See, this question of what it means to be a righteous generation is profoundly important because here David tells us that God is with those kinds of people. And so it behooves us (laughs) to figure out what that means so that we can live that way. You see, we read that phrase, God is with the generation of the righteous, and we, we think, you know, relative to righteousness, God doesn't really care how I live. I mean, as long as I'm sincere, God is with me. Or we read that phrase, God is with the generation of the righteous, and we think God is with the generation of the righteous, so I'm going to be righteous. In fact, I will be more righteous than all these other people around me, so God will be with me and not with them. The Bible has a lot to say about those who are confident in their own righteousness. It doesn't tend to go well for them. Or we look at this phrase, God is with the generation of the righteous, and we think, I am not righteous. I know how I lived this week. I know how I acted this morning. So surely God isn't with me. And so we need to come back to Gospel 101 when it comes to righteousness. Right? This football season. Vince Lombardi, apparently, you know, famous coach of the Green Bay Packers, famously would hold up a football on the first day of practice in front of all these professional athletes and say, gentlemen, this is a football. So this is Gospel 101 when it comes to righteousness. Because if we don't properly understand the bad news and the good news about righteousness, then whatever we think of when it comes to being a righteous generation and raising a righteous generation will be skewed in hurtful, painful, destructive ways. And so this morning, mainly looking at the first three verses and then part of verse 4, We're going to talk about the bad news and the good news when it comes to righteousness. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning with your word open for us, Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, who is with us, among us, for those of of us whom you have graciously called to yourself, dwells within us, Lord, would you open our eyes to this great truth, that we might recognize the great grace that we have been given in the righteous one, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Alright, so, bad news about righteousness? No one's righteous. No, not one. John, I'm sorry, uh, David drives that home here in Psalm 14. Now, I keep using that term righteous. The word righteous does not appear in Psalm 14. So where am I getting that? Well, David in, I'm sorry, Paul in Romans 3 picks up David's words from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. So in Romans 3, Paul writes this, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. And then he quotes David from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So David in Psalm 14 is talking about righteousness. No one is righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? The Bible gives us three key ideas or words even that we can kind of use as pegs to hang things on in terms of understanding what it means to be righteous. And the first is holiness. When we look at righteousness in the Bible, one of the phrases that comes up is holiness. Perfect, moral, 
purity, spotless character, doing the right thing from the right place, with the right motivation, right conduct from a pure heart. God commands that of us in 1 Peter 1 verse 15. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. So holiness. Justice is also an aspect of what it means to be righteous. Perfectly, equitably, consistently giving people what they are due. So in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable about a widow who keeps persistently going before this judge demanding that he give justice for her against her adversaries. And Jesus in the parable Referring to the judge does not refer to the judge as the unjust judge. He refers to the judge as the unrighteous judge. So righteousness includes this idea of justice, perfectly and equitably and consistently giving to each one what they are due. Whether it's punishment to wrongdoers or care and support Provision to the vulnerable. Both of those ideas are there in the Old Testament especially. We'll look at that more next week. So holiness, justice, blamelessness. This is another aspect of what it means to be righteous. To be blameless before God and man. What does that mean? Well, I've done good things today. I've basically kept my nose clean. No. Jesus sums up the entire law by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. So it's not only that I've done things I shouldn't do, I've failed to do the very things that I'm commanded to do. And even when I've done those good things, I've not done them from a place that is truly born out of love for God and for neighbor. To be righteous would to be, bl- be blameless in all those respects. Holiness, justice, blamelessness. This is what the Bible gives us when it comes to righteousness. There is a gold standard for righteousness. Right? We know what that phrase means. We, we tend to think of gold standard as being the best of something. So, shameless plug for New City Cafe. Right? When it comes to neighborhood coffee shops, New City Cafe is the gold standard. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. I got more of an amen last week at New City Church. It's all right. That's how we think of gold standard. There was actually a time in our history when currency was valued against gold. And so there actually was a literal gold standard. I think it was one twentieth of an ounce. And so you could determine the value of a nation's currency relative to one-twentieth of an ounce of gold. So if it took a lot of dollars or took a lot of Deutschmarks to purchase one-twentieth of an ounce of gold, then your currency was weak. It was devalued. If it, if it didn't take many dollars or Deutschmarks or whatever it was, then your currency was strong. But again, if it took a lot, then your currency was weak. The gold standard for righteousness is God himself. Not that Sunday school teacher that you had when you were a kid who pointed you to Jesus. Not your parents or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent who so faithfully pointed you to Jesus and and modeled for you what it meant to live a, a righteous life. God himself is the gold standard when it comes to righteousness. And against that gold standard, the currency of your righteousness is worthless. Completely and utterly devalued. And that's what David is telling us. 
in the first three verses of Psalm 14. David tells us that there is a universal denial of God in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That word fool in the Hebrew is the word Nabal. Now, back in 1 Samuel chapter 25, there's the story. David and his men are on the run. Saul has been trying to kill David. David and his men are on the run. They're near Carmel. And they come to this compound, this home, if you will, of this man. And, and they, they need provisions. They need food. And so David sends his men to the home of this man and says, listen, remind him what we did to watch over his shepherds and ask him to provide some food for you guys because we need food. And, and also maybe remind him that I'm David. I don't know. And so they go to this man and, and they say, we need these provisions from you and we protected your guys when they were out in the field and, and David's asking for this. And this man said, what do I care about David? And what do I care about what you've done for me? Be gone. And so these men go back to David and tell David and David said, grab your swords. So they start making their way back to this man's house, but this man's wife hears of this. And she rushes out to meet David and to meet his men and to stop them and say, listen, please have mercy on us. Don't listen to my husband, for he is as his name. His name is Nabal. His name is his game. He's a fool. And David, here in Psalm 14, says, The Nabal says in his heart, There is no God. Now, Nabal wasn't a fool because he was stupid. I mean, he was a successful businessman, a successful farmer. He was a fool because he had failed to take God into account. Paul, again, back in Romans 1, talks about this. In Romans 1, 18 through 25, the Apostle Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The fool says in his heart, I don't need to bring God into the equation. What do I care about God? The fool says this in his heart. In other words, this isn't just a matter of, you know, wrong thinking or intellectual opposition to the existence of God. This is the operating center of a person's life. The fool says in his heart, I am settled in my defiance against God. This is how I live. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. As Paul said back in Romans 1, heaven and earth testifies to the existence of God. The stars above proclaim his handiwork. My own heart created in his image testifies to his existence and yet I will say, I don't need God. I can live my life just fine without Him. I pay my bills without regard for God. I raise my kids without regard for God. I do my job without regard for God. I have all kinds of fun without regard for God. That is folly. 
There's a universal denial of God. There's a universal determination to ignore God. And again, we see this in verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. How long, um, verse 14, uh, Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Any who understand. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of God for they are folly to him. There are none who understand naturally. There are none who seek for God. God looks down to see, are there any who seek after me? No, David says, they have all turned aside. No one desires to know God. No one desires to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as the first catechism question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. There's a universal determination to ignore God. There is a universal rejection of all that is truly good. So look back at the second half of uh, verse 1 and then the first, the second half of verse 3. David writes, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. And then again, coming back to the end of verse 3, together they have become corrupt, there is none who does good, not even one. Universal. Now, you are thinking, dude, lighten up. But I can't. Because David drives home time and again. This isn't just about a select few. This is everyone. Unless we think, you know, David was just really having a bad day when he wrote Psalm 14. Or, that's just the Old Testament God, not the New Testament God. Let me remind you that Paul in Romans 3 takes this up. And says it's true concerning everyone as well. Now, you may be thinking right now, you know, people are basically good, aren't they? I mean, aren't humans the crown of God's creation? Aren't we created in His image? Yes, we are. I love the way Francis Schaeffer put it. Francis Schaeffer, the theologian and philosopher from the 19th, uh, 20th century, said this, that humans, people, are glorious ruins. We're created in God's image. Psalm 8 says that we're crowned with glory and honor. And yet we are utterly, completely corrupt. The word for corrupt that David uses in Psalm 14 is the word that was used to describe spoiled milk. Polluted through and through. You couldn't just kind of skim off the bad part. The whole gallon was bad. And that's true for us. Now, also, let's talk about good. Because we read this and we think, don't people do good things? I mean, come on, there are all kinds of good things that non-Christian people do. And the answer, of course, is, well, yes, but relative to what? Again, remember the gold standard of righteousness. Blamelessness without, with respect to God and man. Doing good from the heart with a desire to glorify God, to love God and love neighbor. No one does good. Sometimes we think, you know, maybe my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, right? Some of you perhaps are in that place right now. You know, Mark, if I, I can live a righteous life. Or maybe you're at that place right now where you recognize, you know what, I finally am realizing that my bad deeds can't be overcome. And you are coming so close to embracing the gospel. Because that is completely true. 
Did a little research yesterday. Uh, this, is a, this is a measuring spoon, right? It's a one teaspoon measuring spoon. Now picture in your mind the scales of justice, right? The little things on either side that could tip up or tip down. And sometimes we think, you know, my, my bad deeds are on the one side, but if I, but if I do enough good things, it'll, it'll, it'll weigh things over and I'll, I'll be accepted by God. We live that way. But again, think about those scales of justice. Because justice is part of God's righteousness. And think about the weight that is on that side that has to do with your sin over against God's righteousness, His gold standard. The heaviest object in the universe is the core of a neutron star. One astrophysicist was asked, how much would a teaspoon of a neutron star weigh? And he said, about a billion tons. On the other hand, the lightest substance on Earth, and I need to look down, graphene aerogel. You'll find it in aisle three at Home Depot. You won't. Graphene aerogel. Graphene aerogel weighs 7.5 times lighter than air. Those are your good deeds. Scales of justice. I've got a, a teaspoon of a neutron star on the one end, and I've got on the other end my good deeds that weigh lighter than the air that is in this teaspoon right now. Your good deeds will never, ever, ever compensate for your bad deeds. This is the bad news concerning righteousness. But we're left, even from within this psalm, with a question about how could there be good news? Because look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Have they no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up, and then if you want to write in your Bible, circle that word, my. Who eat up my people. How is that possible? How do you get from no one is righteous, no one does good, no one seeks for God, no one understands, no, not one. Together they are corrupt to my people. In verse 4. And the answer is the good news. That there is a righteous one in whom we can be declared righteous. The gospel is between verse 3 and verse 4. The cross is packed between verse 3 and verse 4 of Psalm 14. How can we become righteous through faith in the righteous one, Jesus Christ? This is the good news. God had promised that he would rescue a people for himself. This, this God is with, how can, the, how can these people who eat up my people? God had said from the beginning, I will have a people for myself. I will be their God. They will be my people. That is like the spine on the back of your Bible that holds the whole thing together. This is one story. Not a manual of how to live a righteous life. This is one story about what God did to rescue a people for himself in his son Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, Paul tells us there that that was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. God chose us in him, in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In other words, before time, God knew that we would need redemption. That we would need a righteousness not our own. 
that we might be blameless before Him. And so God provides the righteousness that we require. Again, back in Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. The answer is no. So what did He do? He came after us in His Son, our Emmanuel, God with us. There's only one who is righteous, God Himself. And so God came in His Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue a people for Himself. Rescue us from what? From Him. From His wrath that we deserve. We are declared righteous through faith in the righteous one, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, we get a little hint that this is coming. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, Isaiah writes this, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Again, Isaiah, we, we look back now, and we understand what Isaiah 53, 11 was pointing toward. It was pointing toward what Paul tells us explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5.20. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the, this is the great exchange The righteous one, Isaiah tells us, bearing our iniquities. Jesus Christ goes to the cross. God reckons Jesus as bearing our sin and pours out the wrath that we deserve on him. And then those who look to Jesus Christ in faith, God looks at us and reckons us as if we had lived the perfect life that Jesus Christ had died. He declares us to be righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. After quoting Psalm 14, Paul in Romans chapter 3 says this, But now, and listen to the all and the, just listen for that word all. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is our hope. Listen, if we really understand the gold standard of righteousness, if we really recognize that no one is saved unless we can present before God a spotless record, untainted by sin in any way, If we really believe that to be true, then we find ourselves desperate for a righteous one. One who will bear the wrath that we deserve and enable us to be declared by God right 
in his sight. And that's what we have. The cross fills the gap between verse 3 and verse 4 of Psalm 14. The whole gospel is there. Why did God do this for us? Why? Here's where I think we need to reflect and remember. Because a lot of what I've said up until now, a lot of you guys have known. For a long, long, long time. And it's good to, to remember. It's good to remember what? It's really good to remember why. Why did God do this? And the answer is love. Love. Isaiah, back in chapter 53, verse 10, so the verse right before what I just read from Isaiah 53, writes this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That word will, in the Hebrew, can also be translated desire, or even pleasure. It is legitimate to translate Isaiah 53 verse 10, it was the pleasure of the Lord God to crush His Son. When we think of it was the will of the Lord, we think about a plan that's kind of like, I, I don't want to have to do this, but I'm going to do this. It was the will of the Lord. Listen to what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 2 verse 23, we're told that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan that Jesus go to the cross and bear our sin and shame. And yet, John in 1 John 4.9 says, God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. Why did God have this set plan for His Son to go to the cross to be delivered up? Out of love. That's how much He loves us, John tells us. Paul tells us the same thing in Romans chapter 5. God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. It wasn't just His plan to rescue you from His wrath. It was His pleasure to do so. That promise, I will be their God and they will be my people, that's a pledge from the very heart of God. He is pleased to do whatever it takes to make us His own. Alec Matir wrote this, The heart of God is revealed in His delight, even at such cost, in finding and providing a guilt offering. His Son. Why? Why such love? Again, remember what David tells us in the first three verses of Psalm 14. Remember what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. It's not because of anything in us. God did not look upon you, He didn't look upon me and say, I see potential there. Simply because He is love. 
And we reflect on these things and then we understand what John says in 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. These are the things that we need to remember. If we're going to be a righteous generation and raise a righteous generation, the gospel needs to be front and center when it comes to our personal righteousness before God. It's what led to the writing of hymns such as When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's as God is working that in our heart that we are ready to begin thinking about what it means to be a righteous generation. A generation of people saved entirely by God's grace. Who are the righteous? Only those loved by the Father and washed by the blood of His Son. And as Christians, it is so important that we remember that. Alright, so it's football season. Got to wrap up the sermon with a football story, right? In his devotional commentary on Psalm 14, uh, Del Ralph Davis tells a story about the legendary University of Alabama football coach, Bear Bryant. It was uh, 1979. Alabama just won the Sugar Bowl. They defeated Penn State, so if you're a Penn State fan, sorry. After the game, a small group of people were at a party at Bear Bryant's hotel suite. And Coach Bryant had a brand new t-shirt on. I'm guessing it won, you know, 1979 Sugar Bowl champions or something like that. And he comes out, and one of the people there noticed that this brand new t-shirt had a small hole in it. And so they said, you know, your t-shirt's broke. <laughs> you got a hole in your shirt. And, and Bear Bryant said, yeah, I know. I put that there. I do that with every new shirt so that I never forget where I came from. He had grown up poor. A nobody in a nowhere place. The town that he lived in wasn't even on the state map. And he never wanted to forget that. And we must never forget where we came from. Not because we want to, you know, have a worm theology that says, oh, I'm so bad, is so that we can remember God is so good. He's so gracious. He's so loving. There would be no me if it weren't for His grace. There would be no salvation if it weren't for His grace. I wouldn't know what it means to even want God and live for Him if it weren't for His grace. We remember these things. And then we move out seeking to live as people who are righteous. As people with whom God is pleased to dwell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for what your word tells us about you, about us, about the cross, and about what it means to be counted righteous, even as by your grace we are being made into the image of the righteous one. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.